Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 125, and it's part three of our series on the history of Cuba. As you know, this is a significant wander into the history of this country, which figures so intricately into the story of the JFK assassination. And yes, I know, we stopped and we're on a wander, and we went back way back in time. But it was worth it, I think, for those of you who have listened to the first two parts of this mini-series, and if you like history, it's a good one. Today's episode will take us all the way up to the 1930s, and that'll set us up nicely for a pivot really back into when the mob got started in Cuba in Part 4. So, without further ado, let's listen today to Episode 125 of JFK. The Enduring Secret. As I often do, we'll start this episode with a wander back through the history of American involvement in Cuba to give you some more context on how these stories intertwine. Looking back to episode 124, we discussed the long-standing American ambitions of the annexation of Cuba, ambitions that were almost as old as the United States itself, with the idea really taking hold during the administration of Thomas Jefferson. As we know, the desire to lay claim to our island neighbors did not dissipate as America continued to grow and expand in the mid-19th century, but rather, it only grew stronger. Never did the dream come closer to becoming a reality than in the late 1840s and 1850s during the presidencies of Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan. Tellingly, at Pierce's inauguration in March of 1853, the newly elected president excoriated those who warned of American expansionism as contemplated by the Monroe Doctrine, stating that his policies would not be, and I quote, controlled by any timid forebodings of evil, 
from expansionism. Our attitude as a nation and our position on the globe render the acquisition of certain possessions eminently important for our protection. While Pierce did not specifically mention Cuba in his inaugural speech, it was clear to all that the Spanish possession was in the crosshairs of American expansionism. After all, Pierce and his vice president, William Rufus King, a major cotton producer and slaveholder from Alabama, ran on a ticket that promised to make Cuba part of America. Even more revealing, Pierce supporters marching in the victory parade on the day after the election carried banners that read, Pierce and Cuba. In an even more incredible twist of fate, Vice President King, dying of tuberculosis and seeking refuge from his ailments, was on a Cuban sugar plantation in Matanzas, where he was sworn into office on March 24, 1853. He remains the only vice president to take his oath of office on foreign territory. While King died only four weeks later on April 18, 1853, this did not deter the northerner Pierce from working with American expansionists from the south in wealthy Cuban exiles with strong ties to Cuban sugar plantations and American merchants as well and they all worked toward the goal of annexing the island as a new slave territory for the U.S. Through funds raised by these same groups, President James Polk had, several years earlier in 1849, sent emissaries with directions to offer up to $100 million to the Spanish government for the purchase of Cuba. In a strong rebuke of this proposal, Spanish officials relayed that they would rather see the island sunk into the ocean, then transferred to another power. While this indeed had been a setback to American desires to annex Cuba, Pierce remained determined to take control of the island during his presidency. However, his brash approach to foreign policy and American expansionism, which had essentially won him the 1852 election, was replaced with a timid and cautious diplomacy that sought to capitalize on Spain's deteriorating power and dire financial situation. This reversal of policy was largely due to the violent reactions to the passing of the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which repealed the Missouri Compromise and allowed voters in new territories to decide whether to be free or a slaveholding entity. This development stoked national tensions over slavery and it led to a brutal armed conflict now known as Bleeding Kansas. Fearing similar violent domestic reactions to the acquisition of foreign territories as slave states, Pierce favored abandoning any plans for federal or private military expeditions to Cuba for the purpose of annexing the island. Instead, he enlisted his minister to Spain, a French-born Louisiana attorney and U.S. senator named Pierre Soulet to negotiate with the Spanish government for the purchase of Cuba. For some context, Soulet was an attorney who became wealthy through representing southern cotton planters and slaveholders. He very much believed that, with western expansion of slavery being stymied by anti-slavery northerners, Foreign territories, especially places like Cuba, where slavery was still legal, offered a viable alternative for his southern clients 
to continue their enterprises. Before beginning negotiations, an unsure Pierce directed Soule to meet with his British and French ministers, future President James Buchanan and John Y. Mason, to devise a strategy. Meeting in Ostend, Belgium, the three men drafted a memo, now known as the Ostend Manifesto, and it laid out the rationale for the purchase of Cuba. Echoing past sentiments regarding expansion to Cuba, the manifesto stated that the U.S. would never repose nor possess reliable security as long as Cuba is not embraced within its boundaries. Going further, however, the men included sections that justified declaring war with Spain in the event Soleil's proposals were rejected by the Spanish government. In a shockingly candid admission, one section of the Osted Manifesto was even subtitled, If You Can't Buy Cuba, Steal It. While the Pierce administration never intended for the Austin Manifesto to be seen by the public, Soule had a markedly different intention, leaking the document in hopes that it would rally support for its contents. Instead, it was met with fervorous outrage by most Northern congressmen who were already enraged by what they viewed as a deep injustice taking place through the repeal of the Missouri Compromise. Without the support of the northern congressmen and public, Pierce's dreams of annexing Cuba were all but dead. These failures also spelled the end for Pierce's presidency, as the Democrats did not extend him the nomination in the 1856 presidential election. Instead, they nominated James Buchanan, who is widely believed to be the main draftee of the Ostend Manifesto. Like Pierce before him, his 1857 inaugural speech included thinly veiled references to Cuba, warning that no nation will have a right to interfere or complain if, in the progress of events, we shall still further extend our possessions. This extension was not to be, however, as domestic conflict over slavery was reaching ahead. With civil war on the horizon, Buchanan and the Southern expansionists turned their focus inward in an attempt to save the American institution of slavery that had largely fueled their previous desires to annex Cuba. Okay, wander over. Now we get to the part of the story in the 1890s that begins to feel a little like the original trial run for the second Cuban Revolution a trial run for the one that would happen under Fidel Castro in the late 1950s. Only this first one was the final leg of the journey toward independence from Spain, and it would end very differently for Castro than it did in 1898 for the Cubans at the turn of the century. As a kid growing up, I would hear a lot about Radio Marti. I didn't understand what that was until the later years, but before we explain that, let's talk about the original Jose Marti. After his second deportation to Spain in 1878, the pro-independence Cuban activist Jose Marti moved to the United States in 1881, where he began mobilizing the support of the Cuban exile community in Florida, especially in Ybor City in Tampa and in Key West. If you've been to Tampa, you may know Ybor City. Wow. For those of us that know the Cuban exile story and its struggle to reclaim Cuba in the 60s and the 70s, does that tidbit sound familiar? 
It was repeated in similar fashion in the late 1950s and early 1960s, with Miami added into the mix. Martí sought both a revolution and Cuban independence from Spain, but he also lobbied to oppose U.S. annexation of Cuba, which, as we have already stated, some American and Cuban politicians desired. In exile, José Martí engaged in a fairly impressive propaganda campaign that went on in the United States and elsewhere outside of Cuba for many years. Martí formed the Partido Revolucionario Cubano, Cuban Revolutionary Party, in 1892, with the purpose of gaining independence for both Cuba and Puerto Rico. By the end of 1894, Martí and the party had set forth the basic conditions under which the revolution should take place. Martí astutely understood the U.S. juxtaposition in Cuban politics its economy, and in its foreign affairs. He knew it might be a race in time with the United States, and it would take a push and a shove of the Cuban people to get them to act first and seize the moment. Carpe diem. Take radical action soon against the Spanish crown, earn independence from Spain, and take real control of the island and thus avoid a takeover by the United States. If not then there was a real chance that the U.S. would act first or intervene before control was secured by the Cubans themselves. And then, independence for Cuba? Well, it might be lost forever. On Christmas Day in 1894, three ships, the Loganda, the Almatis, and the Baracoa, set sail for Cuba from Fernandina Beach, Florida, a place south of Jacksonville on the East Coast. Again, does that sound familiar? Cubans launching a couple of small boats from Florida to start a revolution. If you were around in the 1950s and 1960s, this would be a familiar tale. But this time, it was not the Spanish government that they had to worry about. Two of the ships were seized by U.S. authorities in early January, and the U.S. government then alerted the Spanish government of what was happening. Despite that, Martí and his group pushed forward. The insurrection began on the 24th of February, 1895, with uprisings all across the island of Cuba. There were mixed results. In the province of Havana, the insurrection was discovered before it ever got started, and so it was thwarted there. That caused insurgents who were situated further west on the island to put plans on hold and wait as well. Jose Martí was not on the island itself at the start of the conflict. He was on his way back to Cuba in the middle of all of this. And he stopped in Santo Domingo and he gave what is now known as the Proclamation of Monte Cristi. This proclamation outlined the policies that the revolutionary group would apply in the midst of Cuba's War of Independence. These policies were straightforward and easy to understand, and I will enumerate them now for you. First, the war was to be waged by blacks and whites alike. Second, participation of all blacks was crucial for victory. Third, Spaniards who did not object to the war effort should be spared. Four, private rural properties should not be damaged. Five, the revolution should bring new economic life to Cuba. 
At the start of the insurrection, Spanish forces in Cuba numbered about 80,000, of which 20,000 were regular troops and about 60,000 were Spanish and Cuban volunteers. The Spanish understood the seriousness of the insurrection and soon sent almost 100,000 additional troops to the island, and the number of volunteers also increased to about 63,000 men. By the end of 1897, there were about 240,000 regular troops and 60,000 others serving in a military capacity on the island in favor of Spain against the rebels. In a nutshell, the rebels were far outnumbered, and it seemed inevitable that they would be defeated by the Spanish government. The Cuban rebels had a lot to overcome. After the Ten Years' War, possession of weapons by private individuals was prohibited in Cuba. That turned out to be bad luck for the rebels, as one of the most serious and persistent problems for them was a shortage of guns. Because the rebels were severely outnumbered, they reverted to guerrilla tactics, which usually relied on some element of surprise, swift horses, and some simple weapons such as machetes. Most of their firearms were acquired in raids on the Spaniards. Between June of 1895 and November 1897, at least 60 documented attempts were made to bring weapons and supplies to the rebels from outside of Cuba. But only one succeeded, and many were actually thwarted by both the U.S. and the Brits. For vastly different reasons, by the way. You see, laws about prohibiting combatant or gun-running launches from U.S. soil were vigorously enforced by the U.S. And of course, the Brits knew that uh, rebel win would most certainly put the U.S. in a more dominant position over Cuban affairs one way or the other, and with the Brits' eyes still on the island of Cuba, for Britain, a rebel win was strategically worse as an outcome than Cuba remaining as a colony of Spain. Jose Marti was killed early on in the declared struggle. It happened in May of 1895 during one of the battles with Spanish forces, and it would forever secure his glory and martyrdom in the story of the Cuban Revolution. It was early in the conflict, but there were others to carry things on, including Maximo Gomez, who was a Dominican, and Antonio Macho, a mulatto. Both these men fought on, and they escalated the war. We won't go into the details of the war itself, but the rebel army proved, in the end, to be more than the Spanish expected. The guerrilla tactics, in hindsight, proved to be relatively successful given the lopsided odds in favor of the Spanish. The kinds of odds ascribed to such a ragtag, poorly outfitted, and undermanned and undergunned army that the rebels were sporting. Kind of sounds like the American Revolution. In the end, there was much destruction wrought on the island by both sides. By 1897, some would say it was a stalemate, and the longer the war went that way, the greater chance of succession and independence by the rebel forces. But the longer it went on, there was undoubtedly a greater chance, ultimately, of U.S. intervention. Unable to defend the rebels with conventional military tactics, the Spanish government sent General Valeriano Weyler y Niccolo, who was nicknamed the Butcher, 
the butcher would react to these rebel successes by essentially introducing an approach that amounted to nothing less than a terror campaign against the Cuban people. It was a fateful decision that perhaps, in hindsight, would turn the sentiment of the Cuban people against the Spanish troops. There were periodic executions, mass exiles, and the destruction of farms and crops. These methods reached their height on the 21st of October, 1896, when the general ordered all countryside residents and their livestock to gather within eight days into various fortified areas and into towns occupied by his troops. Hundreds of thousands of people had to leave their homes, creating appalling conditions of overcrowding in the towns and the locations that they were forced to occupy. This was a stunning and rare use of what was essentially concentration camps. And even worse, it involved a situation where non-combatants were removed from their land to deprive the enemy of local support. And then, as you might expect, the internees in these camps were subjected to appalling conditions and all the associated diseases and problems that develop in these circumstances. It was horrible, and it was hell on earth. It is estimated that this measure caused the death of at least one-third of Cuba's rural population. The forced relocation policy was maintained until March 1898. We'll say more about that in a minute. Despite the clamor to intervene, America's political calculus regarding Cuba had other elements to it as well, and those included more than just Cuba when it came to Spain. Since the early 1880s, Spain had also been suppressing an independence movement in the Philippines, and that movement was intensifying. The Philippines were taking on increasing importance to the U.S. as well. Spain was effectively fighting two wars on two different fronts, each halfway around the world from one another, and it proved to be an immense burden. More immense than the Spaniards were willing to fund in the end once the U.S. got involved. But not yet. There is more to tell here. In that moment, it was clear to American leaders that if they were to intervene against Spain, it might well include war in multiple locations, not just Cuba. And regardless of when each got started, they would both likely rage at the same time. In secret negotiations in 1896, amongst the turmoil, Spain again turned down an offer from the United States to buy Cuba. That's right, we tried to buy it one more time. By 1897, things were somewhat at a stalemate, and Madrid decided to change its policy toward Cuba, installing a new government in Havana. But with half the country out of its control and the other half in arms, the new Spanish-installed government was powerless and it was rejected by the rebels. It was too little and too late in the game. The Cuban struggle for independence had captured the North American imagination for years, and newspapers had been agitating for intervention with sensational stories of Spanish atrocities against the native Cuban population. As I said, Americans came to believe that Cuba's battle with Spain resembled the United States Revolutionary War. In America, public opinion at that time was very much in favor of intervening in favor of the Cubans. 
In January 1898, a riot broke out in Havana, leading to the destruction of the printing presses of four local newspapers, which published articles critical of the Spanish army. The U.S. Consul General cabled Washington, fearing for the lives of Americans living in Havana. In response to all of this, the battleship USS Maine was sent to Havana in the last week of January 1898. Just a couple of weeks later, on February 15, 1898, the Maine was destroyed by an explosion, killing 268 of its crew members. The cause of the explosion has not been clearly established to this day, but the incident focused American attention on Cuba. In an attempt to appease the United States, the Spanish colonial government took two steps that had been demanded by President McKinley. It ended the forced relocation policy and it offered negotiations with the independence fighters. However, the truce was rejected by the rebels and the concessions proved too late and too ineffective. By this time, even though Spain appealed to its European neighbors for support, they got the opposite. There was no help coming and Spain would have to go it alone. On April 11, 1898, McKinley asked Congress for authority to send U.S. armed forces to Cuba for the purpose of ending the Civil War there. About a week later, on April 19th, Congress passed joint resolutions by a vote of 311 to 6 in the House and 42 to 35 in the Senate, supporting Cuban independence and disclaiming any intention to annex Cuba, and demanding Spanish withdrawal and authorizing the president to use as much military force as he thought necessary to help Cuban patriots gain independence from Spain. This was adopted by resolution of Congress and introduced by Senator Henry Teller, and it became known as the Teller Amendment. It was passed unanimously, and it stipulated that the island of Cuba is, and by right, and it stipulated that the island of Cuba is, and by right should be, free and independent. The amendment disclaimed any intention on the part of the United States to exercise jurisdiction or control over Cuba for other than pacification reasons and confirmed that the armed forces would be removed once the war is over. The Senate and Congress passed the amendment on April 19th. McKinley signed the joint resolution on April 20th, and the ultimatum was forwarded to Spain. War was declared immediately after. It's been suggested that a major reason for the U.S. war against Spain was the fierce competition emerging between Joseph Pulitzer's New York World and William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal. Joseph E. Weissen wrote in an essay titled The Cuban Crisis, as reflected in the New York Press back in 1934, and he stated that, I quote, in the opinion of the writer, the Spanish-American War would not have occurred had not the appearance of Hearst in New York journalism precipitated a bitter battle for newspaper circulation. It has also been argued that the main reason the United States entered the war was the failed secret attempt in 1896 to purchase Cuba from a weaker war-depleted Spain. 
hostilities started hours after the declaration of war when a U.S. contingent under Admiral William T. Sampson blockaded several Cuban ports. The Americans would then invade Cuba. After losing the Philippines and Puerto Rico, which had been invaded by the United States and with no hope of holding on to Cuba, Spain sued for peace on July 17, 1898. On August 12th, the U.S. and Spain signed a protocol of peace in which Spain agreed to relinquish all claim of sovereignty and title over Cuba. On December 10, 1898, the U.S. and Spain signed the formal Treaty of Paris, recognizing U.S. military occupation. Although the Cubans had participated in the liberation efforts, the United States prevented Cuba from sending representatives to the Paris peace talks or signing the treaty. And the treaty set no time limit for U.S. occupation, and it excluded the Isle of Pines from Cuba. Although the U.S. president had no objection to Cuba's eventual independence, U.S. General William R. Shafter refused to allow Cuban General Calixto Garcia and his rebel forces to participate in the surrender ceremonies in Santiago de Cuba. After the last Spanish troops left the island in December 1898, the government of Cuba was temporarily handed over to the United States on the 1st of January 1899. The first governor was General John R. Brooke. Unlike Guam, the Puerto Rico, and the Philippines, the United States did not annex Cuba because of the restrictions imposed in the Teller Amendment. It was high politics within the U.S. on this topic. The U.S. administration was undecided on Cuba's future status. Once it had been pried away from the Spaniards, it was to be assured that it moved and remained in the U.S. sphere. How this was to be achieved was a matter of intense discussion, and annexation was an option, not only in the minds of the American politicians, but also in Cuba. Brooks set up a civilian government, placed U.S. governors in seven newly created departments, and named civilian governors for the provinces as well as mayors and representatives for the municipalities. Many Spanish colonial government officials were kept in their posts. The population was ordered to disarm after the insurrection. Cuba's judicial powers and courts remained legally based on the codes of the Spanish government. Tomás Estrada Palma, Martí's successor as delegate of the Cuban Revolutionary Party, dissolved the party a few days after the signing of the Paris Treaty in December 1898, claiming that the objectives of the party had been met. The Revolutionary Assembly of Representatives was also dissolved. Thus, the three representative institutions of the National Liberation Movement disappeared. Before the United States officially took over the government, it had already begun cutting tariffs on American goods entering Cuba, and without granting the same rights to Cuban goods going to the United States. Government payments had to be made in U.S. dollars. In spite of the Foraker Amendment, which prohibited the U.S. occupation government from granting privileges and concessions to American investors, the Cuban economy was still soon dominated by American capital. 
The growth of American sugar estates was so quick that in 1905, nearly 10% of Cuba's total land belonged to American citizens. By 1902, just four years into the American occupation after the war had been concluded, American companies controlled 80% of Cuba's ore exports and owned most of the sugar and cigarette factories. Immediately after the war, there were several serious barriers for foreign businesses attempting to operate in Cuba. Three separate pieces of legislation, the Joint Resolution of 1898, the Teller Amendment, and the Foraker Amendment threatened foreign investment. The Joint Resolution of 1898 stated that the Cuban people are, by right, free and independent, while the Teller Amendment further declared that the United States could not annex Cuba. These two pieces of legislation were crucial in appeasing anti-imperialists as the United States intervened in the war in Cuba. Similarly, the Foraker Amendment, which prohibited the U.S. military government from granting concessions to American companies, was passed to appease anti-imperialists as well during the occupational period. Although these three statutes enabled the United States to gain a foothold in Cuba, they presented obstacles for American businesses to acquire land and permits. Eventually, Cornelius Van Horn of the Cuba Company, an early railroad company in Cuba, found a loophole in revocable permits justified by pre-existing Spanish legislation that effectively allowed railroads to be built in Cuba. General Leonard Wood, the governor of Cuba and a noted annexationist, used this loophole to grant hundreds of franchises, permits, and other concessions to American businesses. Once these legal barriers were overcome, American investments transformed the Cuban economy. Within two years of entering Cuba, the Cuba company built a 350-mile railroad connecting the eastern part of Santiago for the existing railways in central Cuba. The company was the largest single foreign investment in Cuba for the first two decades of the 20th century. By 1910, it was the largest company in the country. The improved infrastructure allowed the sugarcane industry to spread to the previously underdeveloped eastern part of the country. As many small Cuban sugarcane producers were crippled with debt and damages from the war, American companies were able to quickly and cheaply take over the sugarcane industry. At the same time, new productive units called centrales could grind up to 2,000 tons of cane a day, making large-scale operations most profitable. The large fixed cost of these centrales made them almost exclusively a domain of American companies with enough money available to make such investments. Furthermore, the centrales required a large, steady flow of cane to remain profitable, which led to further consolidation in the industry. Cuban cane farmers who had formerly been landowners became tenants on company land, funneling raw cane to the centrales. By 1902, 40% of the country's sugar production was controlled by North Americans. 
With American corporate interests firmly rooted in Cuba, the U.S. tariff system was adjusted accordingly to strengthen trade between the nations. The Reciprocity Treaty of 1903 lowered the U.S. tariff on Cuban sugar by 20%. This gave Cuban sugar a competitive edge in the American marketplace. Popular demands for a constituent assembly soon emerged. In December 1899, the U.S. War Secretary assured the Cuban populace that the occupation was temporary, that municipal and general elections would be held, and that a constitutional assembly would be set up and that sovereignty would be handed to the Cubans. Parties were created, including the Cuban National Party, the Federal Republican Party of Las Villas, the Republican Party of Havana, and the Democratic Union Party. The first election for mayors, treasurers, and attorneys of the country's 110 municipalities for a one-year term took place on June 16, 1900. But balloting was limited to literate Cubans older than 21 and with properties worth more than $250. Fast forward to March 2, 1901, and the U.S. Congress passed the Army Appropriations Act stipulating the conditions for the withdrawal of United States troops remaining in Cuba following the Spanish-American War. As a writer, this act included the Platt Amendment, which defined the terms of Cuban-U.S. relations until 1934. The Platt Amendment provided for a number of rules heavily infringing on Cuba's sovereignty. First, that the government of Cuba shall never enter into any treaty with any foreign power which will impair the independence of Cuba, nor in any manner permit any foreign power to obtain control over any portion of the island. Second, that Cuba would contract no foreign debt without guarantees that the interest could be served from ordinary revenues. Third, that Cuba consent that the United States may intervene for the preservation of Cuban independence to protect life, property, and individual liberty and to discharge the obligations imposed by the Treaty of Paris. Fourth, that the Cuban claim to the Isle of Pines, now called Isla de la Juventud, was not acknowledged and to be determined by treaty. And lastly, that Cuba commit to providing the United States lands necessary for coaling or naval stations at certain specified points to be agreed upon. As a precondition to Cuba's independence, the United States demanded that this amendment be approved fully and without changes by the Constituent Assembly as an appendix to the new Constitution. Faced with this alternative, the appendix was approved after heated debate by a margin of uh, four votes. Governor Wood admitted little or no independence had been left to Cuba with the Platt Amendment, and the only thing appropriate was to seek annexation. In the presidential elections held on December 31, 1901, Tomas Estrada Palma, a U.S. citizen still living in the United States, was the only candidate. His adversary, General Bartolome Amaso, withdrew his candidacy in protest against U.S. favoritism and the manipulation of the political machine by Palma's followers. 
Obama was elected to be the republic's first president, although he only returned to Cuba four months after the election. The U.S. occupation officially ended when Palma took office on May 20th, 1902. So, to recap, in 1902, the United States handed over control to the Cuban government. As a condition of the transfer, the Cuban state had included in its constitution provisions implementing the requirements of the Platt Amendment, which, among other things, gave the United States the right to intervene militarily within Cuba. Havana and Veraduro soon became popular tourist resorts, though some efforts were made to ease Cuba's ethnic tensions through government policies, racism and informal discrimination toward blacks and mestizos remain widespread during this era. President Tomas Estrada Palma was elected in 1902, and Cuba was declared independent, though Guantanamo Bay was leased to the United States as part of the Platt Amendment. The status of the Isle of Pines as Cuban territory was left undefined until 1925, when the United States finally recognized Cuban sovereignty over the island. The U.S. was out of Cuba in 1902 as a provisional government, but wouldn't be long before they returned. The second occupation of Cuba, also known as the Cuban Pacification, was a major U.S. military operation that began in September 1906, and it happened after the collapse of President Palma's regime. President Teddy Roosevelt ordered an invasion and established an occupation that would continue for nearly two and a half years. The stated goal of the operation was to prevent fighting between the Cubans, to protect North American economic interests, and to hold free elections. In 1906, the United States, through its representatives, including William Howard Taft, negotiated an end to the successful revolt led by the young General Enrique Linares del Castillo, who had served under Antonio Macho in the final war of independence. Estrada Palma resigned, and the United States Governor Charles Magoon assumed temporary control until 1909. Following the election of José Miguel Gómez in November 1908, Cuba was deemed stable enough to allow a withdrawal of American troops, which was completed in February 1909. For three decades, the country was led by former War of Independence leaders who, after being elected, did not serve more than two constitutional terms. Americans would set foot again on Cuban soil in 1912 as American troops re-entered the country to protect the sugar plantations. They did it again in 1916, and on that particular time, they would be called in to quell an armed revolt by Gomez and other liberals, the so-called Shambalona War. And it prompted the United States to send in Marines, again, to safeguard American interests. Gomez was defeated and captured, and the rebellion was snuffed out. In World War I, Cuba actually declared war on Imperial Germany. And they did so one day after the United States entered the war. 
Despite being unable to send troops to fight in Europe, Cuba played a significant role as a base to protect the West Indies from Imperial German Navy U-boat attacks. A draft law was instituted and 25,000 Cuban troops were raised, but the war ended before they could be sent into action. In the early 1920s, the Cuban financial system came to the brink of collapse when there was a drop in sugar prices. Cuba secured a loan from the United States in 1922. Despite the country's nominal independence, many historians and observers concluded that the continued U.S. military interventions and the economic dominance had once again made Cuba a colony in all but name. The next big pivot occurred in the 1930s, and it occurred at the moment of the depths of the Great World Depression. Throughout the autumn of 1933, the Cuban government decreed a dramatic series of reforms. The Platt Amendment was unilaterally abrogated, and all the political parties of the Mikado were dissolved. The provisional government granted autonomy to the University of Havana. Women obtained the right to vote. The eight-hour day was decreed. A minimum wage was established for cane cutters and compulsory arbitration was promoted. The government created a Ministry of Labor, and a law was passed establishing that 50% of all workers in agriculture, commerce, and industry had to be Cuban citizens. The Grau regime set agrarian reform as a priority, promising peasants legal title to their lands. For the first time in Cuban history, the country was governed by people who did not negotiate the terms of political power with Spain, that is, before 1898, or with the United States after 1898. The provisional government survived until January 1934, when it was overthrown by an equally loose anti-government coalition of right-wing civilian and military elements led by a young mestizo sergeant. His name was Fulgencio Batista. And as you might expect, this movement was supported by the United States. Thank you for listening to episode 125 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 